Flicks, a podcast dedicated to discussing movies relegated to a late night purgatory. I am one of your hosts, Adam Walker, and joining me on this wild and wacky cinematic expedition today is Patrick Mitchell. So, Pat, real quick, before we uh, start talking about the movie and, and things like that, I've never done this before on the podcast, but I think I I, I told you over the phone that... You know, I like to retain my reputation as being somewhat a repository of, you know, all all things horror knowledge related. And I and I and I don't like to ever, you know, make any missteps in in information that I deliver. So I want to make a correction up top in relationship to our last episode that when we were discussing Mermaid in a manhole and our and our guests brought up uh talking about it was inevitably he was trying to talk about a, a Fulci movie, which was the beyond. And then when we were discussing it, we made the mistake of of um correcting him by saying from beyond. Yeah. Now, obviously, these are two different movies. From Beyond is a Stuart Gordon movie. We knew that. So shame on us. It was just one of those in the moment. We just made a little bit of a slip. We know that the beyond is Fulci. So for any of you that listened and were like, fuck these posers. They don't know what they're talking about. Deleted. We know that we made a mistake. So I want to correct that right up the top. Okay. We outed ourselves as posers. So. <laughs> and it's wild because like I know we've talked about both those movies before, even though we haven't talked to, about them on the pod, but how much we like both of those movies. I think we were just talking about from beyond not that long ago. Nate was, I blame Nate a hundred percent in this. Uh, yeah, he just, was like describing three movies at once and we were just trying to pinpoint what he was talking about. So yeah, that's always the move. Just blame the guest. Mm-hmm. We take mm-hmm. no so, res- responsibility. Thanks for, for coming on the show. <laughs> fuck nuts. <laughs> and uh, yeah. And just tanking our reputation like that overnight. Um, overnight. 
that stocks are still just skyrocketing in uh, in China. So uh, we've got what, that what, going for us. What is it? Nihao? Yes, Nihao to all of our <laughs> Chinese listeners. Um, also, yeah, you were telling me off the mic that you went to a show last night. The mythical shows that uh, we all used to uh, hear about. And yeah, it sounds like it was a good time. So they do exist. Yeah, I feel like at the M&M's commercial where they they run into Santa and he's, they're like, he does exist. And he's like, they do exist. Yeah. Shows do <laughs> shows do exist. So what the shows said to you when you walked in, the show just goes, he exists. Yeah. And I was like, these Matt exist. Mitchell. Wow. It was, uh, a great, great time had by all. Um, it was in an... It was like in an industrial warehouse space out back. So it was like in the back parking lot of this weird industrialized part of Fountain Square. It was fucking gnarly. Great time, though. Good to hear. I'm glad that, you know, they're starting to rear their head again. Um, I don't know. Maybe someday I'll play a show again. I don't really miss them entirely, and it's not because I don't like shows. It's because I've told this to many people. Shows have been very integral to my life for a, a long time now. My entire adult life into my, you know, m- my more formative years as an adolescent. So it's just nice. It was nice for me to be able to be like, you know, this is a thing that I just don't have to think about. I don't have to worry about showing up to my friend's band shows. I don't feel obligated to play shows. I don't. So lots of politics that are involved with show going and show playing. Yeah. Not just that. It's just like, if I want to go to certain shows or play shows or whatnot, you know, I have to take time off. I have to make sure my schedule, you know, there's all these contingencies that have to be lined up to make sure that, you know, I make it. And, and then when you go, you you know, obviously you got to talk to people. Well, you don't have to just interacting is the the worst, the worst. And I've, I've really perfected over the years, the Irish exit because of that, you know, because forever I was definitely one of those people where, all right, I'm just going to say bye to people before I leave. And then you'd be stuck there for another hour. And I'd be like, why am I still here? I wanted to leave. Now that I'm married, I can't do any of that shit. I fucking wish I always used to do the Irish goodbye. Now I'm like fucking hand. I can't go. in. (laughs) I have, she has to be ready to go. I have to be ready to go. Mm -hmm. It's not all on her, but it's a cooperative goodbye that man. And when you're, when you're stuck in a group of people and everyone's like a Banya from Seinfeld, you're just like, <laughs> fuck, I don't want to talk to all these Kenny Banyas. I just want to go home. Gold, Jerry. Gold. <laughs> gold, Pat. Gold. Well, you know what? Just get divorced. I mean, this is it, dude. Just you yeah. had a good run. You and Aaron had a good run. Tell you what, pack it up. Not, not worth it. I can go back to doing Irish goodbyes and being just <laughs> by myself. <laughs> Sounds great. Um. So I'm trying to think of your kind. What's a do a pat segue? What's a good segue into talking about tonight's movie? You know, uh, when I there was parts of last night where uh, <laughs> the lights. <laughs> 
at one point it got dark and, and they had these lights going and there was some like psychedelic fucking vocals and blown out mm, lo-fi, yeah. you know, surf rock shit. I just felt like I was transported to the sixth dimension at times. Suddenly you're wearing blackface. <laughs> oh God, I should have showed up to the show in in a in a minst- as a minstrel act. This is my first show back. I <laughs> Pat showed up at the show. He slides in on routine. Yeah, he slides in on one knee and goes, "Mammy." <laughs> that was very well received, especially in today's culture. <laughs> um. So yeah. So thank you, Pat. I knew you'd do it. Even maybe if you're not completely in tip-top shape <laughs> i knew you'd be able to deliver one of your famous pat mitchell segues so tonight yeah we're talking about forbidden zone and i will admit pat due to last week's debacle of a movie for you that after i announced it i announced it with great trepidation i was like oh man because like i i, I pick these back to back pretty much just expecting it to be a uh nanny of a time and then you know you 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 were not pleased with last week's selection so i was like oh man he's gonna break up with me because i'm picking these two back to back so here we are talking about it and yeah i guess that's uh as good a way of any to bring up what your initial thoughts were of this movie pat before you even before you even dove into it, now you told me you you, you weren't really familiar with the movie, but kind of give me an idea of what you were thinking. Yeah, um, I think so. Like you said, uh, piggybacking this, especially off of last week, within the first five minutes, I was like, "Did I do something to Adam to <laughs> warrant having to sit through two movies now?" Uh, and I was like, "Fuck him." God, I'm like hungover. This I'm watching this, I'm hurting, uh, and it won me over with its charm. Uh, Fantastic, not, not fully. <laughs> um, I've always contended that Eraserhead is the closest representation to what it feels like to be in the throes of a, a truly like haunting nightmare. Mm-hmm. And I would put forbidden zone in a close second. This has got to be one of the most uniquely unhinged idiosyncratic pieces of filmmaking uh, that I think I've ever seen. And, you know, I, I have a, I have a love for the experimental avant-garde mm-hmm. filmmaking scene. Um, Stan Brackage and Maya Dare and Kenneth Anger shit. Uh, but unlike those films, which are um, a, a lot of times like Maya Darren's Meshes in the Afternoon is basically seen as like the first and most influential like avant-garde piece of filmmaking. But unlike those, those are those can come off as more like art house representations right. and they're, they can be very like appeal to a very snooty fucking fart, fart huffing crowd. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, This is like the other side of that coin. It's still experimental in the way that it's uh, putting together. Like it's the plot and and the way that it's, it's representing all things um, in a very nonlinear fashion and Mm. in a very fucking gonzo ass fashion. Um, I I love it from strictly a 
piece of filmmaking perspective. I feel like this truly exists to like strictly perturb and kind of just poke the bear in terms of just like they just did anything and any everything that they wanted, regardless mm-hmm. of being offensive or, you know, it's purposely offensive in, in a lot of ways. So um, I don't know if that's a coherent, <laughs> coherent thought uh, accumulation, but um, that, that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah, that's good. Well, I'm glad to hear that it wasn't entirely a slog for you then that you, you gleaned some enjoyment out of it. I, I knew about this movie for years and years and knew about the name. And then finally, you know, ended up watching it. And I will say this. So I think I've intimated on this show before that I'm not, uh, I don't drink. I don't, I'm not somebody that engages in what would be considered uh, recreational drug use or substance use. But sometimes I have my dalliances Mm. with and just put put it this way. Like, I don't like weed. I don't like to drink. I don't like hard drugs. So if you can glean from that, what I do engage in. Sometimes I like to treat myself, and I will say this. I watched this movie um, under an altered state of consciousness. Wow. (laughs) You you don't even need to, but you you did. Yeah, at one point I did. So, and basically, yeah, it kind of blew my fucking mind. (laughs) You just did some ayahuasca and fucking... <laughs> and watch Forbidden it. Zone. <laughs> so if you can imagine that how fucked up and wild this movie is, but then on some sort of uh, intervening uh, intermediary substance as well uh, to give you a, a wholly different perspective of it. That's kind of how I, 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 you know, got into this movie. So um, I was glad to watch it with a more sober frame of mind to see if uh, that feeling still stuck. And it did. I still really like this movie a lot. Um, so, and it's similar it, to house when we said, we were talking about house during right. the Flixtober series. And we described it as like, it does the, the movie does the drugs for you. Like <laughs> you don't need to couple it with, although I'm sure it would only enhance the fucking drugs that the movie is doing. Cause yeah, th- <laughs> this is like, uh, it 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 is a waking nightmare of a movie. It, it's very very close to Eraserhead, not in any sort of comparison, mm. um, other than being like what I would imagine the visual representation of a nightmare is. Mm. Like when you're having a fucking nightmare, that it's nonsensical, and yet it makes sense because you're having you're the one having it. So like you make a lot of concessions as to why certain things make sense in it. it is fucking wild. This is one of the weirdest movies I think I've ever seen in my life. I will say as far as the eraser head kind of like compare and contrast goes, eraser head has this pervasive, uh, atmosphere of dread and foreboding throughout it. Whereas this one, it's almost like it's schizophrenic and it's like, 
the people that are in the movie and that made the movie, it's like they're demonic and they are just trying to basically render you completely insane through viewing it, you know? Yeah, that's a good <laughs> description. They're trying to get into your mind and essentially just like rend it apart. <laughs> it did feel like a Vulcan mind meld of like this, the fingers like pulsating on my fucking brain, just mm-hmm. like massaging me to death with its, <laughs> with its ins- insanity. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, to get, uh, kind of move it along here to get to really talking about it. This movie came out in 1980. It, was directed by Richard Elfman, who is the older brother of Danny Elfman. For those of you that do not know the this pairing, these were the two um, originators of Oingo Boingo. But at the time, uh, when they formed it, it was known as the Mystical Knights of the Oingo Boingo. And it was a musical theater troupe that was comprised of basically 30 to 40 people, this traveling troupe. And they would essentially, they would perform these, you know, little theater acts while they played. And it got to a point where Richard, he wanted to focus more on filmmaking. He didn't want to do music anymore. And Danny didn't want to do the musical theater anymore. He wanted to play in more of just a strictly stripped down rock band. So they wanted to essentially archive what they were doing with the mystical nights in, in, uh, in film form format. And that's why they made this. So this is just, this is just a cinematic representation of what the mystical nights of the Oingo Boingo would do on stage all the time, essentially. Yeah. I can't even imagine a live <laughs> representation of this. It's, that's fucking gonzo to think about. Yeah, it really is. I've watched some videos of it and it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty nuts that they did this all the time. Um, so the synopsis of the movie is the Hercules family gets sold a house by a heroin dealer who, uh, ends up getting transported into a secret doorway in his home to the sixth dimension gets basically spooked by it and it's like I'm going to sell my house and sells it. He dupes the Hercules family into buying his haunted gateway to hell six dimension house and their daughter Frenchie falls into the gateway and is kidnapped by the king and queen of the six dimension uh, Queen Doris and King Fausto and King Fausto basically is smitten by Frenchie so he wants her as as his main his main companion, his main concubine or whatever. And and his queen gets jealous and there's an ongoing battle that ensues within the sixth dimension over that. But then Frenchie's family also uh, go down to the sixth dimension to rescue her. And this is like a it's a uh, it's a pantheon of all kinds of wild, weird characters that, you know, are interacting within this story. Um, So that's basically the synopsis and couldn't find anything about a budget, but I will say this, this is what I know about this movie. Nothing about budget. And there's probably no box office gross to be noted. You know, this movie came out like in the, it officially got released in the early eighties and then um, due to like licensing rights and all kinds of that type of stuff, it it basically kind of, wallowed in obscurity for a long time until it got re-released uh uh 
in the 2000s when Richard Elfman finally uh, got creative rights uh, back. He bought the creative rights back. Um, But this is what I will say that I do know that it basically bankrupted Richard Elfman to make. He he would sell out. Yeah, he would flip houses essentially to fund it. And he ran out of that money, and then he had benefactors that came along the way, and eventually helped get the the movie fully produced. So that's what I'll say about that. Um, critical reception again. It's one of those things where over time, well, at the time, actually, I should say this: um, it got a lot of blowback uh, due to. You know, like you were saying, this movie in in many ways is created. I don't know if it was necessarily created to offend everybody, but it definitely did. (laughs) It was basically it was made with the intent of, I think, of having as much taboo, weird, wild type of uh, visuals and ideas thrown into it. It was like just throwing this heap of filthy, weird, surreal spaghetti at the wall and seeing what's what would stick. Um, so at the time when it came out, a lot of people were pretty mad that it had imagery that, you know, conveyed racism, conveyed homophobia, conveyed anti-Semitism, et cetera, et cetera. Richard Elfman and Danny were both Jewish and there's a Jewish cast, essentially, you know, they stated on record that, no, these were none of our intents. And here's why, you know, they explained all of their, the reasoning behind why they did these things. And, you know, so, but that's as par for the course, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, who's making it, what their ethnicity is or creed, their race, you know, if it gets perceived by the town criers a certain way, then that's just how it is, you know? So, um, but of course, over time, this movie has been lauded as essentially being a powerhouse of underground cinema. The one thing that I always like to point out is, uh, the ever great film threat dubbed it the citizen Kane of underground movies. And yeah, 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 it's considered like in many ways, a true midnight movie. It's like the quintessential midnight movie. So, hence why it's <laughs> on our podcast. Yeah, I would put it in line with it's it's in the same kind of category in terms of just its execution and intent and everything as movies like Phantom of the Paradise and Rocky Horror Picture Show. One mm-hmm. of those type of deals where it's a musical and it's wild and it's weird and it's kinky and this fucked up and. Very, it's got uh, like uh, John Waters qualities to it in terms of like where yeah. did they get these band of freaking weirdos together? And it also has like a trauma productions level of of you know poop and fart joke kind of humor. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, <laughs> it's, a, it's a wild ride. But and yet uh, it, it stands out as unique to its own self as well. It's it's kind of it borrows elements from that kind of absurdity absurdist mm. humor but like mm. it's also just kind of its own thing altogether. so yeah uh 100 so without further ado pat unless you have anything more to add shall we move on 
Let's do it. Okay. Let's go into the good, the bad, and the questionable. We're going to get shot down into the sixth dimension. Here we go. this at the top of my good and i think i talked to you a little bit about this last week where this movie has one of my uh what i consider one of my movie crushes susan tyrell did you recognize susan tyrell like when you saw this like what you've seen her in no I not at all okay um you know who i'm talking about though queen yes, doris, the queen, as queen yeah. doris so you've seen crybaby right Yes, but only once, and it was like a mm. long time ago. Okay, so in Crybaby, uh, there's a couple that's played by Iggy Pop and Susan Tyrell. They're just like oh. they're just like the you know they're like the trashy kind of outlaws that uh, live in the backwoods that Crybaby hangs out with. Uh, but Susan Tyrell is Iggy Pop's uh, wife. In that, okay, yeah, that that. And and there is a the one of many John Waters connections then. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah, there is definitely a, the, there is going to be a Venn diagram overlap a lot of, of these two worlds with with this movie for sure. Yeah. Um, but she's been in a bunch of other movies. I like she's also in this like really great horror movie, weirdo horror movie called Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker, where she plays a psychotic mom. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> I love uh, that title. Yeah, she's in. Um, you ever heard of the movies, the Angel series? Or they're called Angel. It's like there's like three or four of them. No, the only Angel in in my galaxy is uh, from Buffy. Buffy, right? <laughs> um, Angel. Uh, the premise of Angel is there's a uh, high school prostitute. Uh, she like, she, she, it's one of those, um, alter ego sort of, she, she's a, she's an upstanding, good high school, straight A student during the day, but at night she's, she's a streetwalker. So yeah, it's one of those, uh, you know, duality sort of things. Uh, but anyways, there was like, uh, three of them made, it's like a whole series of them. And uh, Susan Tyrell's in the first one. Oh, she's not in the other two. I don't think she is. I think no, she's weird. in the first okay. one. Um, so, anyways, but she's an actress that's been around. She was around forever. She's died in 2011, but uh, had her uh, start in you know theater and conventional movies. Her father was involved in filmmaking somehow. He was like a producer or whatever. Um, but she's one of those people that just because she's a weirdo, she was a weirdo, real like, you know, unique individual. She just gravitated more and more towards these outsider kind of characters and outsider uh, movies and fair like that. So she intentionally like put herself like marginalized herself when she probably could have had, you know, a normal career as, as a as a movie star or whatever. So. 
Um, She's definitely the most, <laughs> like, the most serviceable <laughs> acting performance in this. Like, the uh, like by far. Um, and I also found myself like mesmerized by any like when her scenes would come up, any scene with the queen or whatever. Yeah, it was. Uh, those were my favorite parts for sure. Um, I don't know if she just got like the better role or the better songs or whatever, but for what, or she maybe just killed it or all three. <laughs> yeah. She's, she's a standout for sure. Well, she was definitely of the cast, the most established at that point. You know, she, she actually had a legit career in Hollywood. And like I said, she herself, she was all about seeking out these weirdo roles and getting put in them. She had no fear whatsoever <laughs> to the detriment of her own career. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Cause like, that's the thing. Of course she got relegated to being a B movie queen, you know, because of it. But I mean, as far as I know, she had no problems with it. She just kept on trucking in Good those kind of roles. <laughs> um, but yeah, she's, she's amazing as a queen. And one thing, this has happened in other movies with Susan Tyrell, like Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker. She this happens, but this seems to me just kind of a um, this is a trait of hers where <laughs> I love how much this happens in this movie, too, where you know that during their takes of whatever number or whatever she was doing, whatever scene her boobs would just like fall out just completely unintentionally. Not like it wasn't in any way, shape or form intended in the scene. And she just keeps going. (laughs) (laughs) Now, obviously in this movie, there's plenty of, there's plenty of titties. And I put that in my gut. Also, there's a lot of the princess is perpetually topless, right? Yeah. The, the, the topless princess for one. Um, so, it's not <laughs> that's not that's not the issue that it's like in any way, shape or form out of place. It's just so funny. It's like comical that it's like a blooper, but they leave it in there and they just roll with it. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes she has a titty hanging out. Sometimes she does it. Sometimes they're both hanging out like it, <laughs> sometimes they're they're concealed. Like It's a it's a real, real where's Waldo of, of titties in this. Yeah, so like in Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker, towards the end, she's like getting in um a, she's getting in a fight with it's her son in the movie, I believe. And the same thing happens. It's like she has a wardrobe failure sort of a situation. Boob comes out, they'll just leave it right into the kept rolling. <laughs> so she just pops a titty out in like all her roles. That's what I'm saying. I think it's like a signature Susan Tyrell move <laughs> that like really I just love to death. It just really endears me to her even more. She's so. the Elaine of of uh, Midnight Flicks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, love Susan Tyrell. Love everything I've ever seen her in. She's just a real she's a real character. Um, uh one uh, critic that I read pointed this out, and this is also another reason why I love this, is this movie is basically like a live-action Max Fleischman cartoon. Uh, you know, it's it's very... You know, that was the whole point of the mystical crew of the Oingo Boingo was their shtick was to harken back to a different era. You know, like the, you know the 20s and 30s and musically and aesthetic and everything like that. So they were trying to 
do this thing where they were taking a, an old era of you know music and theater and they were trying to integrate it into this 70s punk new wave kind of um form so it was like a, it was a, it was an interesting formula for the time so for them obviously to be referencing or utilizing what would be Matt, max fleischman type of aesthetics in their um animation and just the like the, anim- the animated parts, but also the live action parts. It really, that's what gives us its unique sign of sort of flavor to it. It's like this, it's again, it's a kinky fucked up Max Fleischman cart live action cartoon. So. Yeah, I definitely, that was a, that was at the top of my good was aesthetically. I just love the, the weirdo set design mm-hmm. and all the costuming and the hair and makeup and, I love the stop motion sequencing and 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 the animation. It's just like little things, like when the queen ray guns that dude to death, and he just <laughs> the turns masseuse. into like an animated skeleton or whatever. Like it's it's visually some scenes are like strikingly unique, and and it it reminds me of those early like MTV, yeah, animated the animated logo. Yeah. Uh, and Nickelodeon also had stuff mm-hmm. uh, where they would do animated like, you know, commercials in between shows and stuff. It, it has that like that sort of aesthetic to it, too. Yeah, 100 percent. I was going to mention that. But also there's a through line to that stuff, but also Monty Python. So it has that Monty Python aesthetic to it with the stop motion. And then, yes, and then continues on through those those early Nickelodeon and MTV productions, totally hundred percent. So I feel like that's why, you know, this movie tickles me is because I grew up watching that stuff as well. And so, you know, I have that association in my subconscious with it. So yeah, love that. That's great. Um, just to kind of get more into like the, 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 the finer details of the movie. I love that scene where it, it where they enter the sixth dimension and there's the boxers they're doing their <laughs> dance yeah <laughs> and then they just have the painted on eyeglasses and stubble <laughs> <laughs> did one of them have like one of them looked like he had like half stubble it looked like he was clean shaven <laughs> and the other half of his face was stubble it, oh. which is for this movie far far the course the far least the weird thing that could happen Right. And then there's the there's the boy that's in front of them that has like the uh, the cutout uh, the cutout mouth. It's, oh, yeah. The mouth is superimposed. A, right. a singing mouth is superimposed over his mouth. It's a, <laughs> there's just weird little every scene has got like some just <laughs> weirdo fucking intricacy to it. it it's it's nuts. It's a it's hard. This is a really tough movie. To put into words as to how truly bizarre and unique it is, um, and I have I'm having trouble, like even uh, trying to think of what I felt about it. I don't even know. I like <laughs> didn't hate it or like love it. I, it You're just, still processing it. <laughs> I'm still processing it. I just watched it, you know, right before this, and yeah. I was eating like these leftover wings that we had from last night <laughs> and that scene where the chicken talks to, uh, 
uh, the son or what, what's his name? The they call him Chicken Boy at one point. Yeah, Chicken Boy. That's um um Squeeze It. Squeeze It. The chicken <laughs> is like talking to Squeeze It, and I was like eating wings. I was like, is this movie like purposely like knowing what I'm doing? This is, I couldn't even fucking finish. I didn't even eat. I was like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, it tapped into your conscious. It's it's actually vibing off of what you're doing. And it's just <laughs> it just knows what. Yeah, it uh, it's specific to my viewership and f- just freaking me out. <laughs> um, there was actually a technical reason for why that mouth was superimposed on that kid, and I'll get into that when we can talk about oh, the trivia. It's not a, an artistic expression. No, it wasn't intentional in the original uh, production. It seems like it should be. Right, right. Makes sense, but it wasn't. What a coincidence. What a gnarly coincidence. But that's what's so great is I feel like with a movie that that is this insane and over the top and, and weird that obviously they could just get away with something like that where maybe in the final cut of it or production, you know, it didn't work out the way they originally planned. So they're like, well, we can come up with this really weird reason, you know, we can this this weird thing to fix it, and it won't. It, people will be none the wiser. They'll just be like, yeah, oh, this totally makes sense. You could totally <laughs> right, right. If you if you had to do that in in like a cliffhanger or whatever, because Arnold or Stallone fucked up a line, so you just superimpose the mouth over Stallone's <laughs> face. <laughs> yeah, right. that probably wouldn't work. But in this movie. Not only does it blend in, I didn't think anything about it. I was like, of course, of course, yeah, this is happening. That was a that was an an intentional device. Um, so, you know, when I introduced this movie to you yesterday, and I was telling you how, or not yesterday, last week, um, you know, I said, well, we're gonna watch a musical, and obviously that got a groan, and other people that have contacted me about this and be like, oh, really? I gotta watch a musical now. I get why musicals the idea you know of a musical and watching one or sitting through one could be off-putting to some but to me this completely makes sense and it's not off-putting like this and this enhances the movie and that's another reason why i like this movie is um where they utilize that old music like the cab calloway and stuff like that and they just essentially have the actors and actresses lip syncing to the 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 soundtrack which is just it just sounds like it's just played on an old phonograph and yeah, that's how their does. voice is coming out you know i love that aspect of it it's 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 amazing i could have used more if yeah. anything i it, i actually thought it it could have served uh better with more musical sequencing because there's mm-hmm. there's parts where there's there's no um necessarily it's hard to it's hard to describe because the the scenes that don't have musical sequencing to them are still have like the rhythm and the cadence of music but it's just Mm -hmm. like through spitting and farting and like (laughs) booping noises and shit so like even those scenes are technically musical but like the actual arranged musical sequencing like um i think it's like when the queen has her revenge it's Mm -hmm. that 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 sequence uh, Susan Tyrell has like that, that that's one of my favorite musical parts and that's all original like lyrics and music. So those are my favorite scenes for sure. Yeah. Um, 
And what I wanted to also bring up, we kind of touched upon this. Obviously, there's a lot of there's a lot of boobs in this movie. You know, um, <laughs> this movie boobs are in my good. <laughs> boobs are in my good, but this movie is it's a very sexual, kinky movie. So, and that's obviously that adds to the transgressive overall nature of this. Like, it's, lots of dry humping, lots of dry humping. Gramps and Flash, <laughs> basically, they they hump everything, <laughs> whatever they get around. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who it is. They're just down there to, to fuck <laughs> as they're on their way to, to rescue Frenchie. <laughs> I don't even describe it as like fucking. It's like they're just yeah, I don't know if they see a butt. It's getting it's getting it's get, Yeah. in the least sexual way possible right in the the way like i don't know it's like it's little boys goofing right yeah yeah if you had to put like uh you know billy bob thornton from sling blade in a sexual like (laughs) situation that's how i imagine sling blade would go out of butt just like Mm. hands to his side and pants like still has pants up just softly tapping butts with his sling blade penis. Yeah. So, but it's not just that it's, it's, there's a lot of visuals and references to like BDSM people Mm -hmm. being like tied up in chains, latex and leather is utilized in the costume design a lot. Oh yeah. Uh, The, uh, the princess is about to torture Frenchie with a, uh, electrified dildo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and like the princess almost like you get so used to her being topless that it's almost like you don't even notice it. You don't even notice <laughs> like, it. Yeah. That's at, at first you, it's very prominent. And then like, you're just like, oh, okay, well she's just always topless. So just <laughs> starts blending in, I guess. It's funny. Um, in the IMDb uh, review, uh, like user reviews, somebody gave this movie like a two out of however many stars, ten. Like two out of ten stars, and gave this was one of the reasons. Gave the reason that the princess's boobs weren't like symmetrical in size. One was smaller than the other. What the <laughs> this guy fuck? gave it a bad review because her boobs were mismatched. I didn't even think they. I mean, I don't even. No, know you don't notice it because no, no fucking person in the right behind decent person would notice that because everybody's misshapen. Every woman's breasts are mis. They're different sizes. It's well, this guy's assuredly an incel. So yeah, that's very much an incel comment to make. <laughs> the tits that I masturbate to because the girls that won't fuck me are asymmetrical. <laughs> <laughs> what a dickhead! Um, <laughs> I quite like her boobs. I think they're fantastic. They're I nice. think it's got a great areola to yeah. nipple ratio. Um, yeah, that's a bountiful B of a bountiful a B. B cup. Right, I'm all about it. So whatever, you mean, you mean, you mean more princess boobs, uh, misshapen princess boobs. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so also. Speaking of the Chicken Boy sequence, we got a little bit of a cameo from our, our dude, Joe Spinell. Yeah. Yeah. I put Joe Spinell sighting down. I love seeing him. 
Right. Another, again, another Hollywood weirdo that, you know, even though he had roles and bigger productions, always chose to go the path less tread, the harder tread path, and just struck out on his own with all these weirdo roles and productions that he, he took on himself to, to the, to the bitter end. Yeah. So. And like, he's like, he'd already done at this point, Rocky one and two. Right. <laughs> and the Godfather. <laughs> the Godfather. <laughs> right. What in the holy hell? I love a dude that's like willing to, you know, slop it up in the mud because because he's that shows that he would just do roles that he wanted to fucking do regardless. And and that that shows a lot of integrity because, you know, that's suicide career or career suicide, you know, because mm. to me, it just sounds like he was just like a fun loving guy. He just, you know, he was a fucking weirdo and he just wanted to have a good time. So he said, fuck it. I don't care. I actually just watched. I was kind of half watching it because it was back in the background, but it was, I think one of the last movies he was ever in called the undertaker where he essentially kind of reprises his maniac role, but he's, he's a, he's a murderous undertaker that just kills people to have in his morgue, essentially. What the (laughs) hell? And, uh, it seemed pretty wild. He's missing like half of his teeth at this point. And so when he like smiles or laughs, it's just like even more unnerving because, He's got this huge black gap there in his mouth. God. <laughs> uh, and didn't but he, so didn't he die because he fell through like a glass table or some shit and then just let out, out, but like yep. didn't get any sort of help for it? Like, yeah, he was like a hemophiliac and just, yeah, he drunkenly fell into some glass and that was the end of Joe. He's on, he's got to be on the, the midnight flicks, Mount Rushmore. He absolutely is. I love I love that guy uh, so much. Um, yeah, we kind of talked about uh, also Squeeze It. I love Squeeze It in this, uh, especially when Squeeze It becomes a decapitated flying chicken head. Boy, sure. <laughs> he he was he really disturbed me. I don't like there's something about that performance that just really made me feel uncomfortable. It's like drooling and sweating and like gyrating. Just like he had the most John Waters equality of anybody in this movie. Yeah. hundred percent. So that was uh, played by Matt Bright, who was actually one of the uh, co-writers of this movie. He was, he was a part of the original mystical Knights uh, of the Oingo Boingo. Mm, so, um, I would say, last but not least, in terms of the uh, the cavalcade of weirdo actors and actresses in this, we we have to make mention. I feel of Irve Villachase, better known as uh, the Plain Man from Tattoo. Fantasy Island Tattoo, but um, another guy that just. A true weirdo, of course, and was in a lot of weird, weird, fucked up movies and but also somehow straddled in, you know, more mainstream productions in Hollywood, you know, so he's definitely a standout in this. And um, maybe even more the maybe the most famous person in this. Right. Like 
I mean, everybody associates him as as tattoo from Fantasy Island. I sure. mean, everybody I knows even, who he is. Yeah, from a mainstream perspective, most people may not know who Susan Tyrell is. Maybe some people can pinpoint Joe Spinell for mm. being in The Godfather or whatever. But mm. at the at the height of his powers. Uh, I don't want to keep calling him fucking tattoo. I feel like that's disrespectful, <laughs> but I also can't pronounce his name. So Irve, Irv, okay. Or I'll call him Irv. Or old Herve. Old Herv was probably the most famous person in this movie. And again, willing to slop it up. I love it. Yeah, I would say that at that point for sure. I I will also mention that you know Danny Danny Elfman does have an appearance. That was another uh, good of mine is him playing Satan. The whole scene where uh, Squeeze it goes to make a deal with Satan to uh, save Frenchie. Essentially, uh, I love that whole like with the Cab Calloway number. But Danny Elfman plays Satan, and that was him reprising his role with the Mystical Knights, where they did that number where he would play Satan and sing Minnie the Mooch. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, Danny Elfman in terms of, I would say Danny Elfman in terms of having a hand in the most um, big production things overall, he's the, the most famous, but at that point really wasn't. Yeah. Not, right. From a, so. like uh, watching it in a 2021 lens, looking back probably. Yeah. Um, I love the whole closing number outro scene, the battle between the two ke- uh, queens into that big final production, like, you know, song and dance number where essentially, you know, everybody has gotten over the death of the queen. They've mourned. And now the sixth, uh, the sixth dimension has been essentially reborn and they're, they're, they're there to take over the entire galaxy. So uh, I love that whole outro number a lot. <laughs> yeah, I love a good grand, grandiose staircase musical number to to <laughs> exit a movie. <laughs> sure. Yeah, it's great. And that's I wanna... the nod to all those older films. Uh, right. Like all, all those big budget, uh, you know, musicals of the 20s and 30s would always end in some like dance number on a on a staircase yeah (laughs) absolutely um another thing that i wanted to point out that i feel like in terms of this movie having its dna um reproduce and other things that that maybe people haven't seen this movie wouldn't notice at first but had an influence on me growing up is i definitely definitely see the influence of this movie on Pee Wee's Playhouse and and the production of that and maybe even like Tim Burton and what he would do. But there's definitely in a in a G rated format, Pee Wee's Playhouse is essentially in a lot of ways a reproduced facsimile of aspects of the Forbidden Zone. (laughs) Yeah, especially like how all the fucking doors are like it's like Frank Lloyd Wright shit. Like everyone's everything's at a fucking weird angle and Mm. odd shapes and um that definitely lends itself to the the look of Wee's playhouse and yeah for sure tim burton shit um you know just all the doors that are at weird angles and like giant cartoonish doorknobs that are like placed really high mm-hmm. um, the, all the set design is is 
definitely akin to to both of those dudes. Yeah. Um, do you have any other goods that you want to talk about, Pat? Most of the stuff you touched upon, I am in total agreement with. Um, Danny Elfman singing Minnie the Moocher is like my favorite scene um, mm-hmm. as the devil. Um, I think one thing you didn't mention that I had in my good was I, I really like the choice to shoot this in black and white. And I think it lends itself to the nightmarish quality, whereas color would not have been as like surreal as a, of a vibe. So I thought that was a good choice. Um, I actually meant to ask you which version you watch of this because there is the original black and white and then there's the color version. Oh, okay. So obviously I, I watched the black and white version, so I didn't know that there was. So it wasn't shot in black and white. It must have been. No, it was. And I'll get to why um, there's two different versions when we talk about the trivia. So is the color one like a Technicolor version? It was a hand colored version. Weird. And no, I did yeah. not see that. And I feel <laughs> like I don't I would not like that as much. Yeah. So it was it was it was originally shot in black and white. And then it eventually it eventually got its color. Uh, the color production of it was um, released in 2008. So it's been like fairly recently that um, the color version was introduced. I don't like that they did that. They, they should have just left well enough alone. It, it's it's uh, well, that's another eraser head mm-hmm. <laughs> uh you know similarity but eraser head yeah. is in black and white obviously and it really does lend itself to that surreal quality that these both have yeah like it's it's obviously coming from a different time like a far off time like a um and not it's you know it's not coming from the past but it's coming from a, a yeah completely different world in a different time. Because <laughs> you like, you know, you don't dream necessarily in vibrant colors. <laughs> like you almost like dream in these drab, like black and white colors. So, right. Th- that's definitely, th- th- I, I like that much more than, than the, I, and I haven't seen the color version, but I did, cause I didn't know it existed, but I, I like that idea that they did originally film it in black and white at least. And mm-hmm. the only other thing I had on here was that the forbidden zone song the oingo bongo <laughs> song totally rips i love that song yeah it's great it's, it's great that bass line uh, <laughs> at the, at the beginning that's just a party ripper of a song yeah it's super good uh all right well pat why don't you tell me what your bads are because i guess I'm not saying that there aren't bads to this. Um, for me, this movie is just so weird and just all over the place intentionally in many ways that what would be considered bad for a lot of movies is kind of moot to point out for this. Um, yeah, because so they I guess, em- embrace it. Right. So I guess like, you know, it was difficult for me to really say, you know, what I thought was bad about it. So I was going to ask you like, being someone who's never watched it before, maybe doesn't have the same connection to it as I do. What what bads might you have? Well, call me old fashioned, <laughs> <laughs> but I need some semblance of a of a coherent story to hold my attention. Right, I and figured for the that's life what of me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I just could not piece together what in the holy hell was going on most of the time. So mm-hmm. I don't. I didn't understand. The characters, 
in relation to each other. Like I didn't know who was who. Like I, I the names are all fucking goofy as all shit. So I can't <laughs> like that's why I'm like that dude and that like either say the person the actor's name or just call him that dude because I I just it is so gonzo that i i and i know that they were they there is a story there i just i couldn't follow it and i just didn't maybe with repeated viewings uh, it's something i could grasp a little more um but yeah i i just had no idea what was going on so this felt it played out more like a series of vignettes or like a modern art installation (laughs) of sorts uh than it did like uh i didn't feel like i was watching a movie Yeah, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, but those are the trappings of, you know, experimental avant-garde filmmaking tends to throw all sort of linear storytelling out the fucking window. So mm, that's fine. Yeah. And I will say, I think that that upon multiple viewings, maybe that would help clarify it because I'm right there with you. If, you know, I felt that way at first too, but I was just more in the moment of just being like, Whoa, this movie's insane. Um, I know that other people that have like had any sort of a critical assessment of this movie has said that actually for being as weird and off the wall as, as this movie is, it actually does have, there is a coherent sort of story thread going on in there. If you, if you, if you, watched it closely enough so for sure yeah yeah i can tell that there is i i that's why i'm like i just i just couldn't follow it (laughs) i just didn't i didn't know you know when you watch it for the first time you're absorbing so you're asked to (laughs) absorb so much that there's only so much that you can do to just watch this the first time you almost have to watch it without thinking about it too much just because you're taking it all in visually so Mm -hmm. That that's definitely in my bad, and I'd also say like it it definitely has you know some of uh, the same qualities of like a trauma production um, where I some of my favorite trauma movies I have to be in the right mood to sit through, or it feels like a, a, a chore at times, and and there are definitely sequences in this that I found to be. Uh, laborious <laughs> like the any any and all of the school shit was insufferable i couldn't I, I just there wasn't enough there to to hold my attention um so it, it goes in and out of holding my attention i would say and uh i would say it also has little to no replay value for me i, I just i couldn't see myself watching this again even though this is like pink flamingos like I had a, I had, I was entertained. I like Pink Flamingos a great deal more than this, but I was definitely entertained through watching this, but I I couldn't see myself being in a mood to, to watch this again. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I get that from you as well. Um, and I think I would agree with you that the school scenes do take you out of it a little bit. Um, you know, the, the ABC number I like, so that's fun that I like that aspect of it, but you know, I would say that overall those school scenes could either be shortened or whatever, or at least one of them could be removed and it's not going to take away from the movie, but that's just more, I think that was more of a device to add more like little song and dance numbers into, into the mix and you know, whatever. But so I'm with you on that. That's all my bad. I mean, basically there's no like pinpointed 
character or sequencing that I specifically hated. It, it just it ebbs and flows with withholding my interest, I will say. I'll say this, and this isn't necessarily a bad for me, but from an outsider's perspective that, you know, would want to take any sort of critical uh, cultural scalpel to this in terms of, you know, certain things not landing over time. And I mean, it didn't land apparently at the time that this was made either, even though, again, Richard Altman tried to clarify his position. The blackface is not, uh, you know, age well for a lot of people. And I guess like Richard Elfman even, he even regretted that, I guess, initially. And apparently, I don't know if it's actually on the market yet, but I know that in a recent times he went back and he, he, change that in the movie to give the blackface characters clown face, which kind of drives me nuts, actually. Like, and I was really hoping that you did. If that existed, you didn't see that version. <laughs> yeah, that that's I'm against that. I mean, that that seems abs- th- this movie is like, uh, you know, purposely provocative and mm-hmm. absurdist. And I think in in the scope of this film, those kinds of things, <laughs> the blackface representation in here, the minstrel act, go hand in hand with the type of provocateur kind of cinema that this is. Um, it, it's, it, you know, it's also hearkening back to a time in cinema, you know, through, a, a you know, that we've already talked about mm-hmm. the, um, where that was prevalent. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think it's holding a uh, holding up a mirror to a lot of our 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 cultural <laughs> our cultural standpoints, especially throughout history of cinema. Yeah. So I, I think it, it has a place in this and it has it's saying something instead of just, you know, blackface for blackface's sake, like uh, see Thomas Howell in right. Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Big difference. Yeah, especially, again, with a lot of these things, for me, when an artist is trying to represent certain ideas, there's a context that you have to consider them within and also consider, you know, it just depends. Different people have different schools of thought about this, that art needs to stand alone unto itself. It doesn't need to be or shouldn't be necessarily related to the artist's. For me, it's always been you need to kind of take the whole the whole kit and caboodle, like the context that it was created in, the mindset of the artist behind it. All these things go hand in hand in what they were trying to represent. So if you were just to take it on its face value, like you were saying, yeah, blackface. Okay, so, you know, there's it's very loaded and it's problematic to people, but. I don't think, yeah, clearly Richard and Danny Elfman were not trying to convey racist ideas through presenting blackface characters. So for me, yeah, I don't like the idea of it being removed from the final product of the movie at some point, but whatever, Richard Elfman, apparently he was uncomfortable with it after it got out there and he's since doctored it up to remove it. So I hope I never see that version. (laughs) 
Fuck no, it sounds awful. Yeah. Uh, questions. Again, this is one of those things where it's like, yeah, I mean, just, you know, like you were saying, you know, maybe you had a lot of questions about the relationships between the characters. But again, how do you clearly develop questions about this movie? What, what? I have all the questions and none of the questions all at the same time. <laughs> okay. Well, fire away, my friend. No, no, that that's to say, like... You know, I have all the questions because my main question is, what the fuck am I watching? So that can't be answered. Right. right. Uh, That's the, bi- the big the big question. <laughs> and I have none of the questions in, in the in the respect that, like, I wrote nothing down for this. Because what are you questioning about this movie? I feel like we had no, no, we came up with questions for Pink Flamingos. But for this movie, they're, they're like, yeah, what do you? What are you actually going to put down for this category? Like, well, why was there a, a portal to the sixth dimension in this this uh, heroin dealer's house? Like, I, what fucking questions do I have? I don't have any. I actually just thought of this. Um, this is a question I have. Would you say that the denizens of the sixth dimension, what are they? Are they an alien race? Are they a subterranean race? Do they exist completely out of our own conception of space and time? What What do you think they are? <laughs> what, I don't ooh, think I, you, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure I, <laughs> I tried to quantify it like while I was watching it. I, I again, I just didn't know what the fuck was going on <laughs> like the whole time I was watching it. So, uh, yeah, sure. We're in the sixth dimension. I didn't understand the difference between that and when like, does the devil live in the sixth dimension? Was that hell? Right. Is that different? What the hell's going on? Like, I didn't question it. I just was along for the ride. Um, <laughs> so, no, I don't know what they're... You know, they do show, like... What 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 are the names? Gramps and... Uh, Flash and Gramps. Flash and Gramps. When they tumble down to the sixth dimension, they're going through a literal bowel system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think it's, it's represent, it's representative of, of this being like the deep, dark bowels of our, of our psyche. Maybe I have, uh, I don't want to <laughs> think too much into it, but yeah. Right. There, there's, it's open to interpretation. Yeah. Sure. They, they, <laughs> they, they, they tumble down through a set of intestines out of a, out of an ass. In the sixth dimension. Out of an ass, yeah. <laughs> the asshole people. They're uh, subterranean asshole people. <laughs> I mean, really, they are. That's the <laughs> thing. Literally, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I would just say open to your own wild interpretations. Just, you know, you, you develop your own wild set of questions about this, uh, dear listener. Just let the ayahuasca show you the way. <laughs> yeah, let the hallucinogenic intermediaries do do the thinking for you. So, well, okay, well, then I guess we can just move on to our awards and categories section then, right, my friend? Absolutely. Oh, 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 oh,
Bim bam boom, bim bam boom. Es el nuevo compás que los negros van bailando. Bim bam boom, bim bam boom. La mulatona Mercedes arrollando bate So here we go, words and categories section, and topping it off to the very, very top, we got quotes. And I feel like there's a fair amount of, of quotes in this, but I only had one, and I love this one particularly. And it's when Queen Dora says, when she's when she's dying in the arms of King Fausto, oh, why does it feel so good to be so bad? Ooh, yeah. <laughs> a nice little quip. <laughs> I put down... And again, I don't know who either one of these characters are, so maybe you can help me with it. It's like the old lady. Is she the mom? I, I don't even know. <laughs> She's in bed uh, with one of the I, – I don't think they were in blackface. I think it was one of the black actors, but he says, <laughs> by the way, honey, when is that mentally retarded Swedish husband of yours coming home anyhow? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good one too. The crazy I, line. I thought that was one of the blackface. It's 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 the uh, the heroin dealer. He he's come back. Oh shit! Okay. Well, <laughs> well yes. Uh, okay, so I guess my favorite part of the movie is the blackface. Sorry, sue me. Sorry, <laughs> Midnight Flicks is pro blackface. You heard it first. Uh, I was gonna say <laughs> something, but I'm not going to. <laughs> Don't worry. I've got. I. I'm saving this for the end of the podcast, but we're doing Soul Man next week. No, I'm just kidding. Let's do it. Fuck it. We? I don't we know. Should. Fuck it. We'll do it for the Halloween series. There it is. We'll do a five-part <laughs> series on Soul Man. Um, do you have any other quotes? No, no. Okay. Um, best scene, worst scene. You already said your best scene, and I am in agreement with you. The best scene to me is the Satan Scatman number that Danny Elfman does there. Yeah, not that. Uh, I didn't know that there was anything in cinema other than the Blues Brothers that I really loved a mini the moocher <laughs> sequence. But I guess this, this and Blues Brothers are the two my two favorite mini the moocher performances. Yeah, I like that one too. That's that's good that you brought that up. I feel like that you know, there's some quality mini the moocher scenes in cinema. Just when that number comes out, it's always a good time. You know, it's because it's a great call and response song. Uh, yeah. Anytime you can be like, I'm going to do a bunch of blah blah blah, and then I Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cab Calloway commands a fucking room. He really does. And I'll tell you what, man. So prior to the great furlough of all all bars, I I I worked a shift at a bar that my partner and I both work at and I worked on karaoke night. And even myself, like when I first started going to the this bar that she worked at, you know, I was loath to go to karaoke night. And I know a lot of people are like, Oh, karaoke night. But I actually started working the shift and I actually started really enjoying my time there. And it was usually like a good time, but there was one guy that is a regular at the bar named Ethan. And he always does mini the moocher as one of his karaoke numbers. And it always sends people through the roof. Brings every down time. the house. Brings down the house every nice. fucking time. <laughs> and so it's it's just one of those numbers, man, that people really like they get down with it. Yeah, it, it fucking rips. I, I absolutely love it. 
Um, bad scenes, I guess also we kind of talked about like if there's bad scenes, it's like the school scenes are kind of, you know, there, there, there's entertaining aspects to them. What's I like also like the, the pig nose, uh, twins in it with oh my like God. The, freaky as all hell. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. What, what, what would you say? Is it also yeah, the I school? Put all the, all the school scenes were my least favorite. Yeah. Okay, so next award, the uh, Dahmer, hardly newer for the most killer performance. Mine, of course, is Susan Tyrell. I was going to put Susan Tyrell, but I'm, you know, I put Danny Elfman just for all the work he put into behind the scenes, obviously uh, sequencing all the all the songs and and his performance steals the show just for being the devil and and coming in and doing the the Cap Calloway shit. so I, I put I put him because uh, it's not a it's not a killer performance only on screen. You know, he put in a lot of work with the music, too. So, yeah, I mean, he's just an all around. I mean, he's he seems like he's just like a good, good guy. I like I like Danny Elfman. Yes. Uh, very highly, highly talented individual, of course, uh, in many ways. Uh for uh, the next award, the Michael Rooker Award for the most evil fucker in the movie, I put the king and the queen, I guess. Well, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Don't know. Good, <laughs> bad. I don't know what's going on. There's a lot of moral ambiguity to this movie. So, yes. Yeah, I, 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 I don't have anybody for that category. <laughs> the princess is pretty evil. Like, it's like, yeah, there's, 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 and, and then, and that's what's great about this movie is because there is just no real. The moral, the moral compass is completely shattered in this movie. Every, it's like the the scenes where they show the clock and it's like a gun and a knife spinning around. Like that's yeah, the moral compass. There's that's no, moral compass. There's no due north in this movie. <laughs> or I was gonna say the moral compass uh, is is kind of like one of the melting Dali clocks. It's it's a melting yeah. Dali compass of morality in in this movie. <laughs> and so there yes, you go. True. Um. So recast, I actually had some I thought were fun recasts in this movie. Did you have any at all? No, no, I didn't. Okay, so I had Debbie Harry as the topless princess for a variety of reasons. If I could just put, yeah, Scarlett Johansson as the topless princess, sure. <laughs> but for, but I, I just got like, you know. Well, aesthetically, yeah. I, I could also see her as the queen. Sure. Either way. Yeah. But I just got like the look of the princess, that actress who apparently that this is one of the few things she was in. Um uh, I got heavy Debbie Harry vibes from her, just her haircut. That's a good recast for sure. Yeah. Um, and she was at the height of her powers at, at, at this time, early sure. 80s. Shit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I put Paul Rubens as squeeze it. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's real good. And also just because of their look and their vibe, I put Andy Dick as the teacher. It looks like Andy Dick. (laughs) It does. It really looks like Andy Dick, right? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So there you go. There's our little wonderful. You did a great job, bud. Yeah, I was inspired. Um, Body count. So, again, one of these things where there's a lot of gray area to this. I put three, but okay. So here's my three definites. There's the queen and there's the ex-queen. There's those two. Um, who else? Well, technically, Squeeze It gets killed. 
but then he's like a top or he's a yeah. he's a disembodied chicken wing head. Yeah. Um there's also so Pa Hercules, he works in the, at the La Brea Tar Pit and he unwittingly you know blows oh, up yeah. the entire factory by throwing a cigarette into the tar pit. So I guess there's all those people, but, but he gets like cartoonishly blown up to the moon. So I don't, yeah, I don't know what and, the fuck. And then dropped down into the into the forbidden zone in the sixth dimension as a prisoner. Yeah. Um, there's also what's the other one that I was thinking of? Um, I know there's a third, like more concrete one, and I'm drawing a blank on it. But yeah, so it's hard telling with this one. But not a lot. Not a lot. Not a lot of like on screen death. Dead Alive is still number one here with 87. Could, it could very well be the reigning champ till the end. But I don't know. We thought that about Waterworld. So True. who knows? Who knows? Um, okay. So that brings us to the wiki wormhole. And as, as you can imagine, there's a lot of probably f- fun, fun little tidbits about this. Oh, movie. Yeah, I'm excited. Okay, so I talked about the uh, the kid there in the beginning that has the mouth, the the uh, um, Conan O'Brien superimposed yeah, yeah, yeah. lips imposed on his face. So there was a reason for that, as I said. Um, that kid was a kid that like Richard Elfman just knew from the neighborhood, and he put him in the movie, and he said, "But when he put him in front of the camera." Um, he just stood there. He went catatonic. He couldn't. He couldn't sing his lines or mouth his lines. So he just ended up editing. It's uh, Matthew Bright who plays Squeeze its lips over the kid's <laughs> what the mouth. <laughs> wow, unbelievable! <laughs> but it's great. That's it. I'm so glad that that happened. How forgettable would it be if they hadn't? I wouldn't have even thought anything about that scene. I wouldn't have even remembered it. Yeah, and that kid makes a reappearance in the movie. Um, towards the end, he's a prisoner in the Forbidden Zone, and oh, is he? The, yeah, and then uh, Gramps Hercules comes into his cell and finds the pie and searches devouring. Oh, that's him. Pie. Okay, okay, it's the same it's kid bon- bonking him over the fucking head, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, there's that. So we talked about the criticism that this movie drew at first, um, and. Like I said, people criticize it for what they thought was racist, uh, racism, homophobia, anti-Semitism, and anti-Christianity, which whatever, fuck off. Nah. Fucking stupid yeah, Christians crying about hell. being so marginalized. Oh, my God. How does this even reach their purview? <laughs> right. Exactly. But at the time, of course, early 80s, you know, moral majority, those oh, satanic <laughs> panic shit, you know, those fuck nuts, you know, they, you know. <laughs> They had to fucking hue and cry about everything. But anyways, um, Elfman, who is Jewish, he refuted many of these accusations, noting that the elements seen as homophobic were inspired by his time as a director and occasional performer in the San Francisco avant-garde drag troupe, the Cockettes, who I've read about and know about. And, the Cockettes. Yeah. Such a good name. <laughs> and also, while the character of Mr. Bernstein, accused of being an exaggerated Jewish stereotype, was played by Elfman's Jewish grandfather, Herman Bernstein, who Elfman Riley asserted wasn't acting. <laughs> you could tell he's not acting. Yeah, so he's just he was just an old Jewish man, and that's 
how he just just how they be sometimes. So <laughs> caricatures of themselves. Yeah. Um this I thought is hilarious and just of course perfect. So Susan Tyrell and Herve Villachez were they were actually uh, an item at one point. They dated. That's how um um I can't remember exactly how it worked out, but basically one of them got brought on board for the production and because they knew each other, the other one, you know, came on, they, they suggested the other one, but also Herve Villachase was Matthew Bright's roommate at one point too. So, wow. Yeah. There's all these connections, but there's a funny thing about Susan Tyrell and Herve dating. That's a power couple. I love it. It really is. It's amazing. It's it just, again, just adds compounds to the absurdity of this movie. You have to have completely absurd individuals to make to a movie this like off, this. For sure. this off. Um, okay, so this answers the questions about the black and white thing. So, yeah, originally it was shot in black and white, um, but Richard Elfman intended in this weird convoluted way to ship the movie, the, the film, to China where each cell was going to be hand colored and they had to basically stop that whole thing from happening because they ran out of money. So it was always originally intended to be a color film, but because of lack of funding, they just had to release it black and white. So that's a complete serendipity that it's like that. Weird. Cause I thought you had to film specifically on black and white film and that it was a fucking chore to colorize it after the fact. It is a chore. It's, it's a, it's very cost. So why, did they, why would they do it that way? Instead of just filming it in color. That's, just, because, that's the reason I don't understand because it would have given it a tone and a, and an, and an aesthetic that is only applicable to hand coloring black and white film, black and white film. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So it was a completely an aesthetic choice. That's why he wanted to have that look. Gotcha. That makes sense. So, so anyways, um, I meant to mention this in my good, but I love the pinup painting that King Fausto is painting of Betty Page, that very yeah, famous image yeah. of Betty Page spanking the woman. I forgot uh, about that. Um, but that was an actual painting done by Los Angeles painter Robert Blue, and it was stolen from the painter's studio. <laughs> really? Yeah. So um, Holy shit. But also, Herve Velasquez was himself a skilled painter, so that was a nod to... Uh, his painting abilities as well. A little, a little jack of all trades. My man does it all. A wee um, jack of all trades. <laughs> uh, that is all I had. I don't suppose you drummed up anything for this. No, I'm just here for the party. Just here for a wild party. Indeed it is. So yeah. And there we go. That is essentially forbidden zone. So hopefully not only did we turn on Pat to it, but some of our listeners go out and seek out this fantastic little nut job of a movie. Oh, I'm turned on. Mm-mm-mm. Speaking of being turned on, <laughs> while we turn on our, our, our ratings counter here, what kind of iconography do we want to attribute to Forbidden Zone, Pat? My God. There's so much to choose from, right? <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't even know where to start. Did you have ideas? Um, well, let's see. We could do uh, Susan Tyrell boob. One boob. Uh, we could do King Fausto's. 
We can do flying, squ- squeeze it, chicken wing heads. Oh, boy. We can do blackface minstrel guys. Oh, that seems appropriate. Okay. So out of five blackface minstrel men, Pat, what did you rate this? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I would put it right down the middle. So I'd give it a three out of five. It, you know, again, uh, it worked its way up from like a one. So at first <laughs> I was like, oh, no, what a, what is this now? So no. it worked its way from a one to a two to a three. So it it uh, it charmed me. Um, but I wouldn't put it in in my favorites in terms of like this class of like absurdist, uh, schlocky, exploitative stuff. Um, but it, it's truly unique. I'm glad I'm grateful that you turned me on to it because I it, it's something that I I'm, I I love to be able to say that I've seen. So, yeah, three out of five. And see here, I, I was like. I was convinced after last week, I'm, I'm like, I'm pushing Pat away. Our midnight <laughs> flicks relationship is going to go it's into dereliction. Strained. It's strained. Strained and estranged. But here I've brought you somewhat back into my arms. So fantastic. We can finish out the show, at least for this season. At least this season. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we are under contract, of course, to do it. So the death, we don't want to, the death march rolls on. <laughs> we don't want to break our own personal blood pack that we've made. Um, I give it a four. I've watched it a little bit more than you. I've watched it under altered states of consciousness. I really like this movie. Unlike you, I feel like this movie could be a repeated viewings affair for me. Both me and my partner really like it a lot. She grew up watching this, believe it or not. Um, no, this was like sure. a movie she saw when she was a kid. And Why so not? She, she introduced <laughs> me to it. Well, I knew about it, but she was the one that was finally like, hey, have you seen Forbidden Zone? And I was like, I've heard of it. And it's like, all right, well, we need to watch it. So I like this movie just a little bit more than you. Um, so there we go. And where would you put this on the midnight clock? This is clearly a midnight movie, but where just past? right at midnight, like the most midnight movie ever. <laughs> yep. Just not even so much. I mean, given our rubric before, we could even push it further, but just out of the sheer spirit of the idea of midnight movies. Yes. I would say this sits right at the top of the midnight clock. I also have, have come to the point where I don't fully understand what the fuck we're doing with the midnight clock thing. It doesn't matter. Just, it's like, we, it's like, <laughs> it's like our own forbidden zone. It is. It is our own forbidden zone. It's the Outback Steakhouse of this fucking <laughs> podcast. It's no rules. Just right. Just, we just do it out of obligation at this point. But could I explain it to somebody? Not necessarily. So I hope, uh, I hope our Hong Kong listeners understand it because they are the ones I care for the most at this point. Ni hao. Ni hao. That being said, Pat, you finally, you get to take the reins. We're back in our uh, our normal programming order. So you get to pick next week's movie or next time, uh, the next time movie because as we were just saying off mic, you, uh, you're going on vacation. So we're going to be... Uh, Taking a little vacay next week. So the next next movie, what are we viewing there? Yeah, so Daddy is donning his uh, his Hawaiian shirt and uh, his hollowed out coconut 
uh, filled with tiki drink and venturing to Minneapolis, Minnesota. (laughs) (laughs) The warmer climbs. (laughs) So I'm going to be in Minneapolis for a week. So there will be a a one week reprieve from... (laughs) from this podcast, but then we'll be back and to celebrate being back after the, after the one week hiatus, I'm, I chose to go with a, just a traditional horror movie, but, uh, it's our most modern movie yet. Uh, 2018. Uh, I think you've seen it. Not sure. Terrifier from 2018. I haven't seen it. Wow, even better. Okay, yeah, so even better. The Killer Clown, Art the Clown, uh, Killer Clown movie from 2018, Terrifier. It's a it's a real humdinger of a newer uh, slasher movie. So I, I think you'll really like it. Um, I think it's fucking great. And I think it's apropos because uh, Terrifier 2 comes out this year. So I think it'll be a good, good uh, to look back and catch ourselves up. Well, that's good because, you know, I I rely on you at times to deliver more contemporary modern horror movie uh, movies to me because I'm very picky about what I choose to watch uh, in those regards. So I'm glad that you have picked something newer for us to watch and talk about. So fantastic. We're, we're back in into the modern era. I will say this. Um, the the scary clown motif i'm 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 usually put off by that right right from the jump but i'm i'm not going to go into it with any judgment because i trust your judgment my friend i would agree i think this is um harkening back to 80s uh <laughs> 80s aesthetics in terms of just the a good old ripper of a slasher movie and and part of such it uses uh it uses the clown motif, which uh, was very <laughs> prevalent back then. So yeah. I agree uh, to a great extent, but I, I don't see why you wouldn't um, love this. So okay, looking forward to it. Like uh, like he said, we're going to be taking a week off for those of you that just wait every week with bated breath for our new episode. Uh, you're going to have to find some other thing to occupy your ear holes with other than we have our, a whole catalog. You can <laughs> just start re-listening to the episodes. Just, yeah. Go back deep dive in the whole midnight flicks, uh, back catalog. Okay. This has been another deep dive into midnight movie madness. Big thanks to Charlotte Blythe for providing our intro music. Our outro music is brought to you by the aforementioned Danny Elfman. And uh, I guess this is technically Oingo Boingo. This is uh, in this interstitial point between the mystical nights and the regular Oingo Boingo with the title track from the Forbidden Zone. It's a real humdinger. If you're a band looking to submit a song or a listener looking to submit a question, feel free to shoot us an email at midnightflixpod at gmail.com. That is F-L-I-X. Or hit us up on Instagram at midnightflixpod. For co-host Patrick Mitchell, I am Adam Walker. And we're going to be tumbling down through the intestines into the clown's asshole next week. Uh, two weeks. Next time. Goodbye. Bye-bye.